2: Live from the NASDAQ market site right in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money, and here's what's on tap tonight. Earnings season officially underway. The big banks kicking things off. The results showing consumers and businesses are still relatively strong. But will this year's forecast tell a different story? We'll debate. Plus, a day of turbulence. Airline stocks hit hard despite Delta <coughs> doubling its profits last year. The carrier trimmed its forecast, and investors punished the sector. And later inside Tesla's no good rotten week, United Healthcare's unhealthy returns and Julie and Mike close out our 2024 acronyms. One of them hopes they are on track for the year. The other is feeling brave. Just a little clue. I'm Courtney Reagan and for Melissa Lee this evening, coming to you live from Studio B at the NASDAQ. On the desk tonight, we have Tim Seymour, Steve Grasso, Mike Co, and Julie Beal. And we will start with the kickoff to earnings season. The Money Center Bank's getting things underway this morning. Citigroup ended the day up a percent after announcing it would be reducing its workforce by 10% over the next three years. Wells Fargo, meanwhile, seeing its worst drop since last May. The company upping its loan loss reserves in the quarter and logging a near-billion-dollar chart related to severance costs. But with the big banks now in the books, investors turn their eyes to next week when we'll see results from investment firms, regionals and a handful of names in tech, industrial and energy. So we wondered which of these names will give us the best read on what's in store for the markets and the economy this year. Tim, you get to kick us off.
0: Well, we'll stay with some banks because we're going to hear some of the regionals. We're going to hear some of the credit cards. So DFS, Discovery, I I care a lot about what's going on with DQ and NCO kind of trends. What's going on with the consumer? Are we going to hear more Uh, certainly there? there. Audience uh, would be the the folks that might start to give some insight into that. This is a company that that largely though there's new leadership. There's some you know some arguments they're going to sell their student loan business should improve their capital ratios. I, I you know we'll see. I think loan growth is very important to understand the strength of the consumer. If we listen to what the big banks all told us collectively, the biggest banks in the world, their EPS grew by you know again collectively about 11%. I think people if you told us a year ago um, they wouldn't have expected that. So the strength I think is going to surprise people to the up side. Um, outside of the banks, um, you know, you look at PPG. Again, you're talking about a company that's very much involved in the industrial space, whether it's paints, coatings, things that are uh, both relevant to the housing sector and other parts of the construction sector. Um, and I think these numbers are going to be solid. I think you're going to see, you know, it's it's more about are they getting more back to normal versus is it just about normalization? I think some of those trends might be decent. And then there's Schlumberger. Uh, I like the energy sector. This, is, this would be one of the pillars of an energy basket I would keep for this year. I think they're earning power in 24 could be better than it was in 23, whether we see the oil price spike from here or not. I think this is a case where EPS is recovering to where we were back in 16, 17, 18, which means the stock's really cheap.
2: Gives us a good setup. A lot of things we're going to dive deeper into. What do you think, Steve?
3: Yeah. So when you look at the banks, going into the banks, FactSet was predicting that the bank revenues were going to be down about 3%, 3 to 4%. And if you carved out the insurance arm of the financials, they said that it would be down around 9%. That's a big number. And that gets everyone's attention. We, once we hear the earnings now, we're talking about net interest income. Right. And everyone across the board is saying it's going to be lower. J.P. Morgan, the darling of but the space. But it makes
2: sense, right, with what we're expecting from yep. rates.
3: Yeah. So it depends on whether you expect three rate cuts or six. Right. So where where is that? Where are you going to fall in? Because Wells so, had
2: four, I think, but some of the other banks were J.P. Morgan, I
3: believe, said six. Yeah. So J.P. Morgan is always, you know, basically setting the bar really low for themselves. And Jamie is always historically negative on the economics and the macro data mm. and everything. So he thinks that rates are going to stay higher for longer. He thinks inflation is going to be sticky. I think it is, as smart as he is, I think he dresses down the window. Hmm. So I think we're going to have inflation not as sticky. I think we're going to have rates probably fall a lot quicker than people think they're going to fall. We have the PC. We've talked about CPI, PPI, but PCE is running at 2%, which is where the Fed wants it to be. So I think we're going to be surprised to the upside with the market because we're going to be surprised to the downside with inflation. So I'm looking at a stock, Interactive Brokers, mm. which is hidden under the radar name. No one talks about, no one thinks about on a relative basis, lower market cap than the the rest of the space, but they pay an incredible amount of interest. Okay where the normal banks that we think about, the money center banks, don't pay a lot of interest. So we wind up looking how how many times have you looked at your bank account statement and you're still, interest (laughs) rates are higher and you're still not earning anything, right? You're paying higher (laughs) on credit cards but you're not earning anything. IBKR does a masterful job of doing this. Uh, Across the street, uh, the price (laughs) targets are higher and I think the highest one is 128 on the street. So I'm looking to see if these guys, which are a higher beta to the financials, can outperform.
2: That's good. I like the uh, the under the radar names kind of gives us some education and some homework really to look into. Mike, what do you make? I mean, we've got a lot of lot of uh, earnings still on deck, I guess. Sum up what you learned from today and what do you expect for next week?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, so I'm taking a look at uh, J.B. Hunt and I'm also interested, like Tim, in Discover Financial. Uh, you know, starting with Discover Financial and Tim, Tim kind of touched on this, you know, one of the things that we've seen obviously are rising, uh, revolving credit balances. I think when we look at Discover, Uh, And this isn't so much because I think we ought to be looking to buy the stock. But I think it's just sort of an interesting read on what's going on with the consumer because they tend to appeal to maybe not the top tier of sort of credit-worthy revolving credit borrowers. And if we start to see some credit losses there, I I think that that will give us a better sense of whether we should be concerned about these record-revolving credit levels in general and the strength of the consumer in general, especially also in light of what Citi announced today with their big layoffs. If you start seeing layoffs and you start seeing rising revolving credit balances and you start seeing some increases in charge-offs or losses, uh, I think that's obviously something to to pay attention to. And J.B. Hunt also, I think, can be kind of an interesting thing to look at in terms of uh, the broader health of the economy. Now, freight, of course, usually is, and freight hasn't necessarily been in a great spot. You know, We saw a big and material freight bankruptcy in yellow, uh, obviously, uh, some time ago. But, you know, they're well positioned if it does turn around. That's the first thing I would say. They're running kind of an asset light model. And I think that's, that's also interesting. They have good positioning and intermodal. But, you know, really what we want to see is what management has to say and what they're kind of looking at. Uh, and they are poised if we do see a rebound in freight uh, to benefit from that.
2: Hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I see a lot of different reads we can have there. Julie, what are you watching?
4: I'm really paying a lot of attention to you know, the investment banks. So Goldman and Morgan will be reporting, and I'm really curious for them to talk a little bit more about the M&A environment. There is a lot of pent up demand. A lot of these portfolio companies that are owned by private equity, they got to move around, right? Their LPs are waiting for some kind of liquidity events and they haven't been able to go IPO some of these assets. So they there needs to be kind of some movement and some trading. And so we keep hearing from some of the boutiques There are a lot of discussions happening. You know, we're waiting for a better, more favorable rate environment. It's harder to do deals. And now that we're starting to get a little bit more of a favorable rate environment, I'm curious to see what happens. I was at the JP Morgan healthcare conference and everyone was talking about, yeah, we're all kind of talking about deals. This is a great business development opportunity. And I I think we will see that on the strategic side but until kind of private equity is really unleashed i think that's that's what we really need in order to move the earnings for for those types of investment bank businesses so that's where i'm really looking
2: Yeah, absolutely. Deals have have not been plentiful recently. We're all waiting for when that tide will turn. Well, it was also a volatile day for oil. Crude prices surging more than 4% at their highs, topping 75 bucks a barrel before settling at just under $73. Bretton North Sea crude also rising. The moves come, of course, amid rising tensions in the Red Sea. But even with today's gains, both commodities were down for the week. So how vulnerable is oil right now? Steve, what do you make of the situation? I mean, we're starting to hear some companies, which we'll talk about I I suppose, a little bit later, say, look, this is going to be a problem for us?
3: You have a, you have a, I don't think it's going to be a problem, because I think if you, we always, we play the game on, if you knew yesterday, if you knew tomorrow's headlines today, how would it, how would it react in the market? If you would have told me what was going on in the Red Sea, I would think that oil is up at $100 a barrel. So I, I think that, yes, when you couple it with what's going on with the U.S. now, getting involved with Iran through proxies, however you want to phrase it, I think that's a, that's a problem. And I think you're starting to see the immediate reaction. But as far as the, the uh, real level of where oil is going, it's going lower. And the reason why I say this is that we have a supply glut. Mm-hmm. We're pumping, we're producing at historic levels. And no one thought that that would happen in a Biden administration. Probably his own administration, his own party hates the fact that we are pumping at historic high levels. And whenever OPEC decides to cut, it's cut out of desperation. So, and, and they're all lowering prices. You don't know who, and they never adhere to it. Mm-hmm. So Russia could cut, Saudis could cut, and they wind up pumping oil into the marketplace. So there's always way too much supply. So whatever they do, you take the opposite side. Granted, this is a geopolitical event right now, but if you look at the stocks, the ExxonMobil's the world, Chevron's the world, they really haven't bounced with oil, even bouncing this little significant, insignificant amount of uh, uh, price, mm-hmm. but you haven't seen the stock reaction.
2: Tim, you brought up Slumberger earlier, and energy, I think, was the leading sector here today. What do you make of what's going on in the Red Sea I, I, and then the price there through of, of the commodities? I, I, you know, up. Red
0: Sea in the short run, I mean, Steve's talked about the bigger chess game that is the oil market and the involvement of Iran and, and certainly Iranian exports and, and, you know, whether they'll be let back into the market, whether we're throwing in the back in the box. Um, I think— Saudi and OPEC Plus are pretty well coordinated here. So, yes, U.S. production is high. Uh, but the bigger issue for oil, and if you think about the move to, you know, around 72 bucks before we saw a little spike here and really where it's uh, you know, a very, I think, pretty strong six-month support, it's really been on a view on the economy. And, and I think ultimately, look, you can't have it both ways. The economy that right now is showing a stubbornly strong labor market and EPS growth of 11%, at least what the analyst community says for 24 Is not an economy where oil prices are going to suffer on a lack of demand. I also just every year people forget that we build on aggregate demand around the world in terms of oil. More consumption, especially in emerging market nations like India, Indonesia, parts of where there's there's serious uh, oil imports. Back to Schlumberger, the reason the company to me is interesting is the company's never been, first of all, they are a technology company. They are efficient. They have innovation. They are someone in the middle of the oil services space that really is the only Uh, I would say global player that that is worth investing in here, their earnings power uh, growing 15 percent roughly year over year, I think will translate into much higher prices. I also look at the relative, I I think, outperformance of the underlying securities
1: to the oil price.
0: um, That to me is the story for 2024.
2: Mike, I want to grab a comment from you.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, a a lot of the oil production that Steve was just alluding to, of course, is North American oil production. And uh, you know, if you're looking for oil, basically access to that market in terms of oil services for North America, I think Halliburton is an interesting play. But you know, to uh, to Steve's point, also, I think you know, if you just take a look at the price action in these stocks and in the underlying commodity, they aren't really speaking to a longer-term strong economy. In fact, I think they're kind of giving us the exact opposite read here. And, you know, I think it's dangerous when we look at some economic strengths, like unemployment, for example, which is still looking pretty good at the moment. You know, the backup in unemployment can be severe when basically the economy slows down. So when you're looking in the rear view mirror like that, I think it's a little bit hesitant. And If you look at these commodities, uh, they're not pricing in a really optimistic outlook looking out, uh, you know, six, 12 months, I think.
2: We brought it up earlier, but this morning's producer price index actually coming in slightly cooler than expected, a contrast to yesterday's CPI print. And today's numbers are becoming increasingly more relevant. So CBC Steve Leesman has the details. Why is that, Steve?
5: Well, it's because the PPI affects the PC. I'm going to explain that in just a second. But I think the bigger news here, Courtney, is the Fed is losing the battle to hold back The march towards March rate cuts, data breaking towards lower inflation, and Wall Street economists now backing up where the market is in pricing in those March rate cuts. After today's better-than-expected wholesale price report, Barclay changing its outlook to a March cut, previously had been at June, and saying rates will decline this year to four and a quarter to four and a half, next year to three and a quarter, three and a half. Uh, J.P. Morgan making a bold call this afternoon, writing, quote, it's all over now, QT, Quoting Bob Dylan, for those who might be uh, paying attention, forecasting the Fed begins to reduce its balance sheet runoff, that is, tapering QT as soon as April. The producer price index coming in below expectations, minus 0.1, suggesting little inflationary pressure up the supply chain, prompting economists to estimate the Fed's preferred inflation indicator the core PCE is going to be 2.6% to 3% when it's reported January 26th, and year over year, and even one5 to 2% on a three-month annualized basis. That is darn near the Fed's target, even below it. So what happened to the March rate cut probabilities? They rose by 10 percentage points from 69 to 79. They were pretty sure before. They're pretty, pretty sure right now. Ian Sheperson from Pantheon writing, the PPI is far more important than yesterday's slightly disappointing CPI numbers. Core PCE is what matters for the Fed. And these data will increase the pressure on policymakers to ease soon. Guys, you got two more PCE reports, two more CPI reports, two PPI reports. They come before March. There could be some upside risk to inflation, supply disruptions and higher energy prices in the Middle East or from the conflict in the Middle East. But if we keep going the way we're going, it's going to be hard for the Fed either not to cut or to concede, Courtney, cuts around the way.
2: So, Steve, you've got these three numbers. I'm saying three because you also do this NRF tracker. And you talked about the deflation that you saw there, which was ahead of the CPI print, and then you got the PPI today. So if you put it all together... I mean, which one should we really be focusing on? They don't all <laughs> seem to be telling the exact same story.
5: Well, certainly CPI had some unusual numbers in it that caused people to raise their eyebrows just a little bit. The used car prices were on the way up. There's data suggesting it's on the way down. The rent in the CPI, still high. Uh, we, we Lots of data, lots of market-based data showing that rents have been coming down. So the, the wh- what happens is the... PCE is believed to be a more accurate picture of what's happening in the economy on an inflation, ba- on an inflation basis uh, because of how they change it, because of different things that, 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 they, that they put into the, the calculator. I would follow that. And in part, Courtney, we don't have to worry our pretty little heads about any of <laughs> this stuff because that's the one the Fed follows. So <laughs> that's where I'd go.
2: OK, so we listen to what they tell us on that one. Steve, thank you very much. Have a good Pleasure. weekend. All right, let's trade it. Tim, Well, Steve,
0: By the way, Steve's head is pretty. So, it's very pretty. Um, you know, it's, yeah. it's nice to hear that from We have a ton of Fed speak next week, and if you think about what the Fed's agenda has been since the last Fed meeting, and we saw it in the minutes, is to actually damp down the expectations of rate cuts. So we, we had very hawkish Fed cut. We have Waller. We have New York Fed Williams, who I think is someone you should be always listening to. And there's a lot of Fed speak. There's a lot of chatter. This week was a fascinating week because I think even earlier in the week when there's some components of that CPI data that were somewhat hawkish. And you had some jobless claims number that tell me the labor market is still extremely strong. Look, rates went down this week and rates went down in the face of some massive issuance. And and that's impressive. And it may speak to what everybody's saying here about the inevitabilities of what the Fed is. I, I think what we've lost track of and investors just kind of lost track of of this overnight, is the sheer amount of deficit uh, spending that needs to be covered and the sheer size of refunding that's going to go on in global bond markets around the world, including ours. And and remember, this is all we thought about in October. This is all we thought about when rates hit their peak, uh, and yet nobody's talking about it. And I get it. It makes sense that the the, the economic path we're getting right now says rate cuts. But um, again, deficit supply and issuance is a big problem.
4: That's a good point. Yeah, I guess our memories are short on some things. Julie? Yeah, one thing that really stuck out to me in Steve's reporting is, you know, now we have 80% of the market expecting a rate cut in March. If it doesn't get it, the tantrum will be substantial. Mm -hmm. And it will have, I think, pretty big ricochet effects. So there is a lot of pressure on the Fed, but there was a lot of pressure on the Fed for them to raise rates too. And they waited a very long time to do that. So I appreciate that the market thinks that they can bully the Fed, but they tend to kind of do whatever they want. I mean, they're a little bit like my toddler was, you know. So I I think it's like, I think it makes sense. But I think that they're not really looking for inflation to just kiss 2% and then start cutting. I think they want some sustained reporting that the Fed really, that that inflation really is at that 2% rate. Yeah, I'm going to remember that. The Fed's just going to look at us and say, you're not the boss of me.
2: Do what <laughs> <Yeah. gonna>
0: do. <laughs> exactly. well, we want to do. Exactly. bully anymore. Bullying's right? not nice, everybody. Yeah, no bullying. Not nice. But you right? know, if you're a toddler, yeah.
2: you still win. Bullying. You know,
0: yeah, they always win.
2: Always. Anyway, well, coming up, Tesla tumbling and United Healthcare under the weather today. We'll dive into new prices in China and a disappointing earnings beat dragging these names down. Plus, major turbulence hitting the airlines as Delta trims its earnings forecast. We'll unpack the outlook from Delta CEO and ask if this trade should be grounded for now. Fast money. We'll be right back.
6: You're watching Fast Money
7: here on CNBC. We'll be right back. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.
8: What does it
2: mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC.
6: We expect to see an inflection point in the first part of this new year in terms of our domestic unit revenues turning positive. And also, corporate travel is up. Uh, again, it finished the year strong, and it's picking up again. So we're now probably back almost 90% of where we were pre-pandemic levels and continuing to build.
2: That was Delta CEO Ed Bastion on Squawk Box earlier today. Despite a beat on the top and bottom line and record revenues, Delta trimming its 2024 earnings forecast, and shares plunging nearly 9%. And that was the stock's worst day since March of 2022. Now, the rest of airlines dropping with it. American, United, Alaska Air, all facing some major turbulence today. The FAA also announcing plans to audit Boeing's production line, bringing that stock down about 2%. Tim, airlines were a part of your acronym last year, not so much in 2024.
0: Well, um, look, I, I like Delta. I actually think this pull, is not going to surprise people Uh This pullback is to be bought. Uh, Now, their guide was conservative. I wouldn't even say it was awful. I was surprised at the reaction today. But again, that that guide was below previous guides. So there's a lack of... Uh, confidence and trust in, in the airlines. I, I refer to them often as trading stocks. This is the perfect day to tell you that. I, I'm not sure that they're often trading on fundamentals. It, it, Delta is a $49 stock on an EV, EBITDA five times, which isn't expensive, which is kind of where it's been trading over the last four or five years. But you see a lot of variance in that, even, even that uh, valuation range. So um, today was an ugly, ugly day for airlines. They had actually gotten out of the gates pretty well this year. I think this is weakness to buy.
2: There's costs, though, that you're concerned with, Steve. We talked about well, I think this labor, before the yeah. show.
3: I think labor costs have all through the whole transport sector, labor costs are, are, are vital to their business. And I don't think there's enough attention paid to it. I don't think corporations actually talk about it, they, they mask it with supply chain issues. I think the, uh, the overarching uh, thing with the airlines right now is Delta is definitely best in breed. But when you look at them on a performance basis, no one has really knocked the cover off the ball. So you have to look at it. You have to trade the market that is in front of you right now. So to me, it's it has to do with the max jets. Mm. Delta doesn't fly max jets. But Alaska Air, that's 20 percent of their business. Then if you look at uh, United Air, mm-hmm. it's 8% of their business. So if Delta doesn't have any exposure to the max jet, I think that you're safe buying this dip in Delta, uh, in Delta if you have to own them.
2: Okay, fair enough. Well, there's a lot more fast to come. Here's what's coming up next.
6: Tesla in turmoil and an insurance stock in need of some medicine. Stat, should you buy the dips in these stocks or avoid them like the plague? We'll debate next. Plus, China in focus, fresh economic data out of Beijing, and pivotal elections in Taiwan could make an impact heard around the world, even in your portfolio. A top expert joins next for key insights on how to navigate the headlines. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market side in Times Square. We're back right after this.
4: What's on the horizon for financial markets?
2: Welcome back to Fast Money. A couple of buzzkills today. Tesla and UNH both sinking. Let's dig into Tesla first. The EV maker dropping nearly 4% after cutting prices on some models in China, the stock at its lowest level in two months. Tesla also confirmed reports that it would temporarily halt most production in its Berlin factory due to supply chain constraints, constraints because of what's going on in the Red Sea armed conflict, and that is making things difficult for them. Mike, I believe this is one of the first companies, at least in the United States, that trades here, that has drawn this direct correlation to what's going on in the Red Sea and the impact on its production.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's obviously a little bit of a pressure. You know, Tesla kind of interesting in the sense that they respond, you know, just looking at the China price thing first, uh, respond much more proactively, I think, than most of the conventional automakers do when they decide that they want to ramp sales. Uh, they cut their prices aggressively. And, you know, what's interesting, too, of course, is because they don't use conventional dealer You know, franchise dealer sort of market arrangement and sell direct to consumer. They have a lot more flexibility on this front. So, I mean, I I still like the company in terms of the business model. I still like the company in the sense that they are able to make profits. uh, You know, manufacturing and selling uh, electric vehicles where others cannot. Uh, I do feel though that the and the only thing I don't really like about it is that. You know, we're not in a market, I think, that's really rewarding the biggest growth stocks the way it did in twenty twenty three. I think there's kind of a rotation that's been going on basically since the tail end of September towards value and, you know, basically the rest of the S P rather than these sort of magnificent companies, if you will, and I include this in it. So that that I think is really the biggest headwind for them. But I, I actually think if anybody can be nimble enough in their business to navigate this, they're at
2: Steve, what do you make of the move in Tesla today on these two pieces of news?
3: There's been fundamentals that have actually moved Tesla price, and where in the past it was based on just to, to Mike's point, are they the only ones who can produce or are they the only ones who could survive? It was a rates issue with right. this type of company. And now they're still the only one who could produce vehicles at scale in the EV space. Where Ford and GM can really compete and where Toyota has competed has been the hybrid uh, issues. It has been the hybrid cars. So looking forward, I think Tesla's going to be more about charging. That's where they're going to actually monetize that. I would wait, though. Technically, I would wait for that $200 price level on Tesla before jumping back in.
2: OK, and you're at 219 now. OK, so now on to United Health, down more than three percent, its biggest drop in seven months. The insurer stock basically responsible for the entire 118 point drop in the Dow today. UNH reporting a beat on the top and bottom line this morning, but higher than expected medical costs weighing on the stock. Julie, what do you make of this one? I mean, this is a big name. It's important one for us to think about in, in the healthcare space and obviously a really big weight on the Dow today.
4: Yeah. And I think the big weight is the weight, right? It's a function Mm -hmm. of people are still trying to figure out how GLP-1s are going to get paid for. And you know I think that this one is kind of at the center of a lot of that turmoil is understanding payers, employers, who's going to cover these costs. I think it's a really challenging environment for them to be able to navigate well. There's so much pressure and they're very much in the crosshairs of both rising costs, but also frustration, Uh, and challenges with just running an insurance business. So for me, fundamentally, this is not one that's super appealing.
2: Hmm. Tim, what do you make of this one? Well, what opportunity, though, no, for the GLP ones, even if we don't know who's paying for them?
0: Yes, without question. Boy, the markets told you that. I, I, I'm long United Health, so I, I kind of think that some of this is, is sideways news. I also think that United Health has been such an outperformer over the last three to five years. Uh, I, the valuation, though, isn't terrible here. And, and again, depending on how you want to look at it, uh, on an earnings multiple, though, again, you're around 22 times. And, and I, I think uh, when you consider where Allocation is going more towards healthcare. What we're seeing towards big pharma, um, United Healthcare it doesn't surprise me that there's been uh, some relative, uh, you know, rotation out of names like this. But ultimately, high high quality and a name that continues to grow earnings, and that's part of the reason why it's deserved a higher multiples because the growth there is actually quite impressive relative to the peers. Hmm.
2: Mike, what do you make of United Healthcare? What we learned about them this morning.
1: Yeah, I mean we also own United Health. I mean that that uh, what was it? 18% increase in uh, in costs obviously was a little bit of an eye popping number. But here's something else to think about. So this is a company that has traditionally traded at a significant premium to the broad market. Right now it's trading at or maybe at a slight discount. You know, I think it was Tim that mentioned at the outset that the S&P forecast for earnings growth is about 11%. Here you're going to get somewhere in the neighborhood of 13 to 17% over the next 2 years. And you're getting it at the same multiple as the S&P or lower in the so basically the healthcare provider space, which has historically been quite stable. This is a very well managed company. You know, if you you know say you know buy it or sell it right here, I'd have to say buy it.
2: Interesting stuff. Okay, United Healthcare down more than 3% today. Well, coming up, elections this weekend in Taiwan and fresh economic data could have a huge impact on China, China and the global economy, frankly. We're sitting down with a top expert to talk through the major implications, plus a luxury letdown for Burberry, the English fashion giant falling hard after slashing its profit outlook numbers, and whether that luxury trade is due for a wake-up call. That's coming up next.
6: Missed a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money Podcast. We're back right after this.
2: Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks finishing Friday mix, but still ending positive for the week. The Dow down about 118 points, and the S&P and NASDAQ both closing just barely positive. The NASDAQ now on a six-day win streak. And Bitcoin ETFs sinking in their second day of trading as investors test the waters on this brand new suite of crypto trading vehicles. Steve, you've been poking around in these names. I know there was some pain felt early on. Yeah. what are you making well, of what happened well, here this week, and what are you doing about it?
3: Well, the Grayscale Ethereum Trust was very good to me last year, and the Bitcoin ETF was very bad to me in the last two days. I, I, I think you have to have the risk tolerance because when you're trading these type of things, they're all based on the, on, on the price of the underlying cryptocurrency, and And with the volatility that we've seen, Bitcoin was up so dramatically, you had to, in theory, get that pullback. And even when you're trying to play that pullback, they're so, they're so outsized these moves. So for the retail investor that's not, that doesn't have a Coinbase account that is trading in, in, uh, on, the, on the side of his regular uh, equity stocks I think it takes some risk tolerance vetting if you will to get used to these moves I'm in it but I'm trading it like crazy hmm. because it's just it's not one of those set it and forget it's yeah it moves against you and you feel as if I have to either add and then sell on a bounce so it's it's definitely put my uh, put my trading ideology to, uh, to task.
2: I think this is going to be fascinating and see what we learn here. Of course, we're just in the very early innings of this, just two days in. We're going to move on, though, quickly here to China. Voters heading to the polls Saturday for Taiwan's hotly anticipated presidential election, with the results expected to have major implications for the relationship with Beijing. At the same time, more weak economic data coming out of the mainland, with CPI weakening and 2023 exports posting their first annual decline since 2016. So for more on all of this, we're joined by Shazad Ghazi. He is COO and managing director of China Beige Book. So I guess let's get started first with the Taiwan election, since those are coming up here right around the corner. What, what are the current expectations and then what are the implications of that, particularly as it pertains to this contestable relationship with China?
8: Yeah, I mean, the expectation is that if the DPP continues to be in power, you're going to get a very aggressive reaction out of China pretty much right at the outset. We've already been seeing the spy balloons. We've been seeing the fighter jets coming into Taiwan airspace. We get to see much more of that. uh, So the military maneuvers get more aggressive, which is very risky. Think about accidental war breaking out. And of course, the secondary component is, Economic punishment, the economic coercion that we hear coming out of China. Potentially tariffs, potentially trade war, certainly maybe even getting rid of the, uh, at the very least, the concessions on certain items that uh, Taiwan enjoys today. So it could get pretty hot pretty quickly. Uh, KMT comes into power, maybe not so aggressive. But the long run looks very risky still.
2: Hmm. So either way, we could be in potentially for some more turbulence between the, yeah. this relationship. Okay, and what can you tell us about this economic data, sort of uh, looking at at the Q4 data that's yet to be published, you have some insight on?
8: Yeah, we actually have uh, released our own uh, economic numbers on China. And what we're picking up, number one, is this, the economic recovery after uh, COVID that we expected to see in China. You got some of it. It was disappointing. But even that is completely over. Hmm. The real estate market is in deep trouble. Consumer spending is down massively. Manufacturing is holding on, but that's about the extent of the good news there. Well,
0: so I guess the question for markets is, have we priced China effectively? I, clearly, structurally, this is a different economy than it was. It's probably going to continue to be a deflationary force, even though there's a lot of onshoring, which is inflationary. But I guess my question is, do you think the, the administration and in terms of stimulus and in terms of what they can do to at least jumpstart this economy is going to be meaningful in any way in 24? But and we're the markets, guys. But, I, you know, do you, do you think people have overreacted to China in terms of the macro?
8: Yeah, I think markets right now are just betting. Those who are betting positively on China are betting on stimulus. And my message is stimulus in China is going to be probably a lot smaller than those Mm -hmm. with more bullish outlooks um, are expecting to take place. Uh, A lot of it, I think the problem is pushing on a string. Monetary policy easing has been happening for over a year. Credit costs have been falling rapidly. It's just not making a difference. The property market is still not being able to find a bottom. Companies are not borrowing out there.
0: It's interesting, too, because this is a week when Japan, after 37 years, finally got to all-time highs again. I'm not going to compare them two, but there's a credit dynamic and a housing bubble that blew up in Japan. And this is what happens with a credit crisis. It actually takes – it's a cancer that takes a long time to clear through. Sounds like you think some of that is – is, is at least the dynamics there are part of this.
8: Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. The property story is going to be with us for several more years to come. We're going to get more developers potentially blowing up in years to come. And we're never getting back to property as the big you know, right. juicer of growth it used to be.
3: Shazad, we're always looking for the un- unknown things that are going to happen, the, the things that are the black swan events. So this has been telegraphed uh, pretty, pretty accurately going forward. But to Tim's point... There has been a bounce coming, or we've we've thought there was supposed to be a bounce coming. Is there a chance that this we're we're going to see a, an off the cliff approach with China this year? Where, or, or we just not? Will they come? Will they rush in with something? Because it seems like it's a very desperate country, a very desperate um, economy, and it feels like everything is failing. Is it? Do we know the, the real
8: depth of this? Is there a, an outlier event in your mind? So There isn't an outlier event. I think there's a more disappointment ahead for sure. Uh, Not necessarily catastrophic. Uh, But if you want to look at the upside, by the way, for a second, you could see that in the second half of uh, this year, the property market actually stabilizes. And maybe that does have a positive effect on Chinese households. So we can't completely discount that. the main thing to go back to is China is not coming out with billions and billions of you know spend, dollars worth of spending happening in the economy, uh, and then the type of big stimulus that we used to get back in the day. Yeah.
2: Thank you, Shazad Kazi. I'm sure you're going to have a busy weekend. Uh, stay close to us, and we will follow up soon. Uh, Tim, what do you make of everything and the expectations for this weekend?
0: Well, it, it was acronym week here, and uh, the <laughs> B in my acronym Bicep was was Baba. It was more a, a, of a, at least a proxy for China. If you look at the K Web, and again, the biggest tech companies in China. I mean, this is this is essentially uh, an ETF that has uh, has been basing and essentially been doing nothing but grinding, kind of sideways to slightly lower. I, I think that bodes very well. I mean, at some point. Again, there is mean reversion. At some point, the, the, the earnings dynamics with a lot of these companies are, are extremely attractive. We know it's not always about that.
2: Fascinating. So that was Bicep. But coming up, we've got more <laughs> trader acronyms. We're revealing our final two trader acronyms after the break. One is facing the market head on. The other is thinking about racing. You won't want to miss this finale. And major luxury fashion retailer Burberry raising an alarm about the high-end consumer, why the already battered space can't seem to catch a break. Fast Funny, back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've been unveiling our trader acronyms all week. So today we are sharing our final two Julie Beal and Mike Coe. Julie, what is your 2024 trader acronym?
4: So, my trader acronym is TRAC uh, because I'm going to try to stay on track this year, (laughs) which isn't always very easy for me, what with the ADHD that I have. <laughs> one, starting with transUnion, you know a lot of what I'm trying to think about are big secular themes that can kind of support growth in twenty twenty four. TransUnion, you know, has a lot of exposure to you know the availability of credit with their scoring and you know being one of the the one of the few bureaus that exists out there. So I think that they benefit from a, a better interest rate environment. A is Aspen, Aspen Technology, primarily a company that focuses on chemicals and oil and gas, but they have this really great grid asset. And I think we're gonna see a lot of grid infrastructure spend happening in 2024. We really need to modernize our grids, they're a mess. Um, The first C is uh, Sortara. Sertara is kind of a simulation software business for biosimulation. So, as we see more drug development move more and more into simulation in silica, I think this is a company that benefits. They're really well positioned and lodged right in there in the FDA. And then the last one is Cooper. Cooper is a contact lens company. What they have that's really unique is this myopia management. Contact lens that you can give children to offset the impacts of their spending a lot more time indoors. And I think that's going to really rise in prominence as parents try to offset any kind of myopia that they see in their kids. That's
2: that's, interesting. I like these names. Yeah, these are names we we don't often talk about. Okay, Mike, it's your turn. What's your acronym for this year?
1: Uh, I think people should be brave in 2024. And the B (laughs) is for Bitcoin. So, of course, it got a little bit volatile around this uh, ETF launch. But I think you have to think a little bit about money flows. You know, it's going to be a little bit slow for the uptake for those that haven't been able to participate. And I still think that Bitcoin is likely to uh, test its all-time highs. R is actually for the residential MBS. So that's RMBS, or it's a play on real estate, I suppose. But really, it's on the credit side. Uh, Really, I think the the benefit here is that, you know, I think you could see a decline in, say, the 30-year fix. That's a benefit on the duration side. And because the uh, average bond portfolio that contains residential mortgages, number one, in many cases, they're secured uh, by government guarantees. But in addition, you know, the prepayment risk is really not an issue in declining rates. That's the refi. That's where you get negative convexity in your fixed income portfolio in something like a mortgage portfolio. It doesn't really exist here. So you're going to get like five and a half percent, but it is uh, both protected. And I think it's probably going to benefit also from a decline in the rate spread between 30 years and the 10 year. So I think that's a a potential benefit. A, um, I'm taking a little license here is for the chemical symbol for gold, AU. Uh, But AU does happen to be the ticker symbol for Anglo Gold Ashanti, which is one of the gold miners. It might not actually be my favorite gold miner. You know, you might better off be, you know, choosing something like Newmont. But uh, I liked gold last year, got a little bit uh, less than 10% out of it for the year. I still like it this year, especially if rates come down, because I think that's probably been <laughs> one of the head headwinds. V uh, is for value. Uh, I think you can play this if you want to just fairly purely by doing VTV, which is uh, a value ETF. Uh, and United Health, which we talked about earlier, is actually the second biggest constituent. And E is for emerging markets which you could play through an ETF like EEM that will give you exposure to some of the names that Tim was talking about in China. But if we do see lower rates, that is going to be a headwind to the dollar on a relative basis. And also, emerging markets actually trading cheap uh, to the S&P when you take a look at how those valuations typically have compared.
2: Okay, crack and brave. I know we're going to have a lot of time to right. talk about these. Oh.
0: You know what? The whole <laughs> the whole acronym game has been twisted upside down. First of all, Mike's a smart guy. I love his picks. But choosing A for the symbol for gold, I mean, come on. Nobody's a- playing a- by the rules anymore. I'm the only one that picked tickers relative to Hang on. I'm the only one. I picked them. All right. All right. Two it, e of us. is did for too. V is for Great ideas, that, that but works. you didn't play the game. All right. All right.
2: right. right.
0: I did all right. <laughs>
2: Good points made by all. I'm not going to be the judge. Coming up, more Fast Money is coming up in two. You don't want to miss the special Mad Money, by the way, also in Kansas City, straight from Arrowhead Stadium. Jim's chatting with Chiefs CEO Clark Hunt, as well as NBC analyst Tony Dungy and Rodney Harrison. And speaking of football, don't miss tomorrow's wild card game between the Chiefs and the Miami Dolphins. It will air exclusively on Peacock, starting at 8 p.m. Eastern. Fast Money rolls on after the short break. We have a news alert on the SEC Chair Gary Gensler commenting about the X-Hack earlier this week. Let's go over to Kate Rooney. She's got some more details. What's going on? What have we learned here, Kate?
9: Hey, Courtney. So we did get a statement here from Gary Gensler on that X-Hack where the SEC account was taken advantage of by an unauthorized party and gained access to that account and then tweeted about an approval of a Bitcoin ETF a day before it was actually approved. Gary Gensler saying, that the SEC takes cybersecurity obligations seriously here. Commission staff, he says, are still addressing the impacts. We did get some details, though, on how this happened. They said this was the unauthorized party gaining control over a phone number. They say there were actually two tweets. One of them was just BTC, the symbol for Bitcoin. They said that was later deleted. This unauthorized party was also liking certain tweets. So we're getting some details on what went on with that unauthorized party, but they do say they're uh, coordinating here with appropriate law enforcement and federal oversight entities, including Office of Inspector General, the FBI, and Department of Homeland Security. So an update here on that incident we got earlier in the week. Courtney, back over to you.
2: Very interesting. Kate Rooney, thank you very much. Have a good weekend. Steve, I mean, obviously we were talking about Bitcoin earlier in the show. What do you make with these new developments?
3: How is that possible? that the SEC gets. I mean,
2: uh, we were talking about the two-factor authentication, which apparently they didn't have at the time. We're not sure if they do now. I think it's, it
3: I, I think it's crazy to me. And, and it just, you know, take it to Palo Alto. Take it to any of these cyber security stocks. Mm. But I, I just don't understand for the life of me how the SEC can get hacked. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And it just confuses the overall markets. But God forbid any of us got hacked on, on yeah. our Twitter or whatever. It wouldn't be such a big deal, right? But when the SEC gets right. hacked, you think they would have some sort of a firewall.
2: Yeah, and you know, there have been other hacks on other platforms that have been considered safe. I remember some time ago, actually, that even PR Newswire was hacked, put out a press release, supposedly by Walmart. I think it it was approving Ether as a form of transaction, and right away, I think I knew, like, this doesn't smell right, but it can happen, and it went out on a legitimate source, so Mm -hmm. this does make it difficult when we're trading on information very fast, right, Tim?
0: Yeah, and and it tells you why CrowdStrike's up 180% Mm. off those lows, and it tells you why the multiple for these companies. I mean, you know, you're not skimping on cybersecurity, and if you are, you're toast. Right. So, I mean, and it's going to continue to evolve. That's why I think, uh, some and Adobe's a great example, and, you know, I mean, but I, I think there are uh, a handful of these companies. And I think we've also seen that the multiples on some of the others um, have faded to, to at least uh, much Well, they're a lot more expensive now because I don't think they have the same kind of growth. But again, I'm long CrowdStrike. I I believe that this is a a multi-year growth story, and I believe that they're going to live up to that growth multiple.
2: Hmm. Mike, what do you make of what's going on here, and are there companies we should be invested in that hopefully will put in some guardrails so this doesn't happen, at least not so easily and not to such important accounts?
1: Well, I, I think any of the sort of third-party supports that uh, are offered to companies like ours, actually, in the financial services industry that help us sort of comply with, with cybersecurity issues, it's interesting to me because everybody else who's on the desk right now knows that if you're in the financial services industry, we're always getting continuing ed about how... you.
0: Wow, he just got hacked. I, I know, shoot. I mean, I oh, mean gosh. somebody didn't want him to say that.
2: Oh, man. All right, well, all right, there he is. Okay, thank you all. Coming up next, we've got your final trade. It's time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Mike Coe, you get to start us off.
1: Yeah, I said value stocks. United Health is a value stock. It's actually the second largest in the BTV index united hill
4: it looks like you're getting it for sale today julie beal uh saya not just fun to say but this is a transportation name that's great quality i would take a look and <laughs> tim
0: Courtney, thank you for joining us. I'm going to take Mike's A in gold and turn it into GDX gold miners who are rallying. Bye, that.
2: <laughs> and Steve Rasso.
0: The A in my wage trade is Amjet. It's much cheaper
3: than the others in the space. Amjet.
2: Okay, there you go. And that is an A. It does work for an acronym. Just thank you for watching. Fast Money, Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts now.
6: warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit CNBC.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer.